Well, in just a few days, as you all know, Thanksgiving will be coming up on us, and of course, I want to wish all of you here a happy Thanksgiving. Um, probably that's why some of you are here. And inevitably, sometime in this week, um, someone's going to ask you the question. And you know the question, it's, what are you thankful for? And as we reflect, of course, on the blessings that we enjoy, uh, we will no doubt realize that we have a lot of things to be thankful for. The list is long, right? We have, we have our family, we have our spouse, our children, our friends, the job that you have, the food that you can put on the table, your home, your health. And all these things that we enjoy, we ought to give thanks for them to God who is the source of all of our blessings. But while an attitude of thanksgiving is a virtue that we all want to cultivate and we want to think about this uh, this season, today I'd like to bring your attention to something else today, a real and present danger that is facing us. It's a danger that threatens all the things that we've just listed, all the things that we are thankful for. We would lose all of them. Friends, family, job, wealth, all of them in imminent danger. It's a danger that threatens your very way of life. It's an enemy that's coming for you as much as it's coming for me. And the enemy I'm speaking of is death. That's right, it's death. It's the greatest enemy of all. And this is not how we like to think, of course, but when death comes for us, all of those blessings that you count will instantly become dust before your eyes. They'll be all gone. Because death is the enemy that we can't escape no matter how hard we try, isn't it? And so let me give you a startling statistic, all right? As of last year, the rate of death in the world per person stood at, get ready, 100%. 100%. All indications are that this rate will continue unabated into this year as well. And here's another statistic. If by chance you are lucky enough to escape accidents or disease, then you may live about 80 years, right? That's the life expectancy. So look around you, because a rough estimate based on that number says that in about 20 years, one in four people you see in this room will be dead. And in 40 years, half of us will be dead. That's not a very long time. You see, every person born on this earth is born with a death sentence on their head. And we don't like to think about it, but that is the reality. And you know, somewhere in the bottom of our souls, we know that this is wrong. This is not how things ought to be. It's not. There's something terribly wrong with a universe that contains death. A universe that contains death is not a good universe. It's not. And yet, let's just ask the question. If we are to believe that a good God created the universe, then how in the world did death get in? Well, it turns out the answer is that it was not in the original blueprint. Death came later. How did it come later? Well, that's the question that our text will answer for us today. So if you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 5, let's start reading in verse 12. And before we do, let me just start out with a word of prayer. Father, I pray you would help our 
um, view of this text be accurate, help what we want to communicate in this text to come out for us so that we might worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now before I read the passage, I should mention that there are very few passages in the New Testament that are quite as consistently hated and attacked as the one we're about to look at today. It's one of the key battleground passages in the entire Bible, precisely because it so clearly explains the human condition. And guess what? Most people, or many people, don't like that explanation. Because the explanation will mercilessly rip to shreds any remaining pride and self-sufficiency in your heart. And it will hurt. But it's an amazing passage. In one swoop, it explains not only human history, but all of redemptive history as well. We see that all from the vantage point of this passage. So let me just give you an outline today for this passage. In this passage, we will see three principles or three laws in terms of the law of gravity and the law of thermodynamics, laws that define the natural world, right? So three principles that completely determine whether you live or die. That's it. Three principles, just three, that when taken together will completely determine whether you ultimately live or die. Here we go. Let's look at verse 12. How did death get into the world? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Stop right there. This is how death came into the world, says Paul. The world was not created with death present, but it came into the world later through what? Through sin. Because death is the penalty for sin. So then the question becomes, how did sin get in? And the text says that sin came in through what? One man. One man. One man did this. And who was that man? Adam. It was the first man that God created. The man through whom the entire human race is descended, Adam. He sinned. And because of his sin, this verse tells us, death intruded into the world. It spread everywhere to everybody. And you see, the book of Genesis tells us that when God originally created the heavens and the world, it was all perfect. There was no sin. There was no death. There was no pain. There was no danger. And if you lived in that world, you would never have to die. This was a paradise that we can't even imagine today. But in that garden, Genesis tells us, when God created Adam, he told him this. He told Adam, you have total freedom to do anything you want in this created world. You can eat any fruit that you want from the hundreds of trees that you see before you. But you see that one tree in the middle, that one tree in the middle, just that one. Don't eat from that one because the day you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. That's in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. That's just the only law that Adam had ever, was ever given that he needed to follow, just one. And you know what happened? The serpent tempted Eve. Eve ate the fruit. And then Eve gave it to Adam. And then he ate of it. That, my friends, is when sin entered the world. 
and death through sin. But I want you to know, when this passage says death, it's actually much worse than you think. Because it's important to understand that death here refers to more than just physical death. It's physical and spiritual death. How do I know that? Well, remember, God told Adam in Genesis 2.16 that the day he would eat of it, he would surely die, right? The day he ate of it. But Adam didn't physically die that day, did he? In Genesis 5.5, we find that Adam physically lived 930 years before he died. So what did that mean? Well, it means that that day, Adam died in a much more tragic sense. He died spiritually. To die spiritually is to be cut off from the fellowship of God, to be cut off from the friendship of God that he once enjoyed. Indeed, to be spiritually dead is to listen, be utterly powerless to please God in any way, to become an enemy of God himself, an enemy. And that's what happened to Adam the day he sinned. From that day on, Adam became a walking corpse, a walking corpse. 930 years later, that inward reality of deadness worked out into his physical body and he died physically as well. So back then into our passage in Romans 5.12, you might ask, how does any of this have to do with us? So look back at the text. Death spread to all men, all men, that includes you and me, physical death and spiritual death as well. But how? How did death spread to all men if only one man sinned? And the last three words of verse 12 ought to send chills down your spine. Because all what? Sinned. What does that mean, because all sinned? Does that mean that death spread to us because we all sin individually in our personal lives? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that we all sin. Get this, when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned in the garden, we all sinned in the garden. His sin is, listen, counted to be the sin of us all. Now, hold on a second. You might say, how do you know that's what it's saying? Well, it's obvious from the context. In, in fact, just look down for a bit at verse 18. Verse 18 says this. So then, as through one transgression, the transgression of Adam, there resulted condemnation to who? All men. You see, for the one transgression in the garden, we are all condemned. Did you catch that? Adam's sin was put into your account. Every human being. That's the inescapable conclusion from these verses. And that brings us to the first of the three laws that I'm going to give you that determine whether you live or die. The, the first law, the first principle is this. Everyone in the human race inherits Adam's transgression, condemnation, and death. Everyone in the human race inherits Adam's transgression, condemnation, and death. Just as if we ourselves had committed that act. With one sin, Adam murdered the entire human race. That's when we all died spiritually, and that is why you are all waiting to die physically. 
In a very real sense, you were born dead. You never had a chance. Your spiritual death occurred the day Adam ate the fruit. And that's why King David says in Psalm 51.5, he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother what? Conceived me. David was counted a sinner the day he was conceived. And so are we. Because of Adam's sin, all generations that follow him became a world full of the walking dead. The walking dead. Our whole world is full of walking dead people. They walk by you every day. They're already dead on the inside, and they're waiting to die on the outside. And when they do die, all they have waiting for them is eternal conscious judgment in hell, separated from God forever. That's eternal death. That's the human condition. Now, I just want to stop for a minute and ask a question that I know is on your mind. And that is this. Is this really true? Does God really judge us on the basis of another man's sin? That sounds incredible. Because I thought that God just judged us by what we do. That's what we've always been told, right? Whether we've kept the rules or not. That's what we've been told. I mean, are you telling me instead that God judges us based on what someone else did? That's hard to believe. And frankly, we don't want to believe that. It goes against every instinct that we have. And guess what? You're not the first to ask that question. Paul knows that the Jews of his day would violently object to what he just said. No, 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 they would say. We don't die for what Adam did. We die because we break God's law. So Paul then is going to take the next two verses and prove that to the Jews, listen, this is, this is very interesting, that they, in fact, believed this all along themselves. He's going to prove to the Jews that they actually believed they inherited Adam's sin all along. They just didn't know they believed that. And they're going to, he's going to prove that their own theological system requires that they believe that we inherit Adam's sin. And it only takes them two sentences to do it. So this, is, this part is a little heady, so I try to follow along. It's just a beautiful proof. Let me first lay out the logic for you, because I think it'll be more helpful that way, and then we can look at the verses, right? So Paul's argument is this. You Jews have always believed that life comes from following God's written law to Moses, right? And death comes from disobeying it. All right. That's what they believe. Step two. Pretend now there is a world where God never gave the law in the first place. All right? So you think that by the law, you live or die. Pretend there's a world where God never gave the law. No law. If there's no law, sorry. If there's no law, could there be any violation of that law? Yes or no? No. There's no law to violate. So then if there's no law to violate and there's no violation, should the person who lives in that world live or die? They didn't violate the law, so they have to live. You have to conclude that based on your own system of righteousness, based on following the law. You can't get away from it. But now here's the nail. Here's the kicker. Your conclusion is easily proven false because there was such a world. It was during the time period of Adam to Moses where there was no given law of God. The law didn't come until Moses, and the only law that God gave before that was to Adam, and that law could no longer be violated because they were kicked out of the garden. 
So during the time period from Adam to Moses, there was no law to violate. But those people, they live or die. They all died. So why did they die? Well, there's only one transgression that was possible to the point, and that was Adam's. So by your own theology, Jews, this requires you to believe that you inherited Adam's transgression. That's his proof. Your own theological system requires that you believe we inherit Adam's sin. But hold on, think about what this means, because if Paul can get the Jews to admit that they inherited guilt from Adam, what does that do to their whole system of work-based righteousness? Completely destroys it. If you're already guilty in Adam, then what difference does it make whether you obey or disobey the law? And see, that's how Paul shreds the entire system of work-based Judaism in two sentences. So let's see that from the verses. Look in verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or counted where there is no law. I think the best interpretation here of what Paul is saying is this. In your own system, sin is not imputed or counted where there is no law. Because it was the law that allowed them to count their sins, you see. What they would do is they would match their violation to the corresponding law. And it was important they counted that correctly because they would have to bring the appropriate amount of sacrifices to atone for that sin so that they could make up for it. That was their system. So if there was no law, Paul says, then there's no way to count your sin. Now look in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. There is Paul's trap. Look at the world from Adam to Moses who didn't have the law. Nobody living during that time could have violated it in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was the sin against the direct commandments of God. No violations. They should all live. But since they all obviously died, they must have inherited that sin from somewhere. That's what their own theological system requires. So it's true then. We all need to believe this. We all sinned in Adam, and we all died in Adam. All of, this, of, of us in this room have sinned in Adam as well. Now, a question that might be on your minds is, what's so special about Adam? The answer, of course, is that he was the first human being God created. And for some reason, listen, God viewed Adam as the representative head of the human race, the entire human race, the representative head. And when he fell, the whole human race fell with him. He was our representative head, like a king is the representative head of his country. If he declares war, he declares war on behalf of not only himself, but all of his soldiers as well. And it's his soldiers who will have to die for that decision. Or like a husband who runs up a credit card bill and then dies. His wife inherits that debt even if she did not incur that on her own, right? And that's also what explains why even though it was Eve that first ate the fruit, it's Adam who is blamed here. Because Adam is the representative, not Eve. Now, when one of us comes to fully understand the representative headship of Adam, the next question out of everyone's mouth is, that's not what? Fair. That sounds really unfair. And by the way, 
not many people like inheriting sin from Adam. You're not going to find anybody that's rejoicing over that. But not liking it, I just want to tell you, doesn't make it any less true. It's what the Bible says. But hold on, that's not the end of the story. And I promise you that by the end of this sermon, you'll actually really, really like the idea of representative headship. You'll really like it. You'll actually be really thankful for it, because at the end of the day, you'll find out. This greatly works in your favor. It's greatly in your favor. So just hang on a bit and you'll see that. But so far, I've only given you bad news, right? And that was just all a long introduction, really, to the real meat of the sermon. Because realize that Paul's main goal in this passage, in bringing up the representative headship of Adam, isn't simply to educate us about Adam. That's not his goal. You understand that? In fact, he only brings it up to, listen, explain by comparison something vastly more important. More important than Adam. Someone who is so important that it makes Adam the father of the human race and the greatest mass murderer in all of human history seem like a distant memory. This person begins to be hinted at at the end of verse 14, which, look down in your text, says that Adam is what? A type of of the what? One to come. A type of the one to come. And who was the one to come? Jesus Christ. Adam is a shallow, pale image of the one who was to come, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. That's this whole point in this passage. Adam is a mere impression, like a stamp of ink. He doesn't show the whole thing, but he's like the original mold in some way. He resembled the original mold. So then, the obvious question is, in what way is Adam an impression of Jesus Christ? Well, this passage will tell us. But let's back up just a bit first. And let me tell you something important about this passage in a structural sense. We saw that Paul begins a thought in verse 12, right? but then realized that what he was saying was so controversial that he had to interrupt his own thought to explain himself. And the key to understanding this passage is to realize that everything between Romans 5.13 and Romans 5.17 is a parenthesis. In fact, there's explicitly a dash in some of your Bibles between 12 and 13 that shows that. But he picks up the thought again in Romans 5.18. And so I think this passage will make much more sense to you if we read just verse 12 and then we skip to verse 18 where he completes the thought. So let's read that. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, listen, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Of course, what it means is not all men entirely. It's all men who they represent, right? So this is what Paul is saying. And this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say in this whole sermon. The way that Adam relates to you as the representative head of the human race is the very same way that Christ relates to you as the representative head of the redeemed race. 
I'll say it one more time. The way that Adam relates to you as the representative head of the human race is the very same way that Christ relates to you as the representative head of the redeemed race. And this brings us to the second principle that determines whether we live or die. Principle one was that everyone in the human race inherits Adam's transgression, condemnation, and death. And principle two is this. Everyone in the redeemed race inherits Christ's righteousness, justification, and life. Everyone in the redeemed race inherits Christ's righteousness, justification, and life. You see, Adam is the representative head of the entire human race. But Jesus Christ is the representative head of all who believe in him. In both cases, their one act determines the spiritual condition of all they represent. That's the world we live in. But notice that the nature of the inheritance is exactly opposite, right? Through Adam, we inherit sin and death. But in Christ, we inherit righteousness and life. And if you're a Christian, then you need to realize that understanding how Adam relates to you is critical to understanding the gospel itself. Because Paul is telling us that Christ relates to you in the price in precisely the same way as Adam did. It's an exact parallel. And you can say it like this. If you want to understand the gospel, then you must first understand the fall. In both cases, you inherit guilt or righteousness based on, get this, nothing you have done. You see that? And by the way, this is just as an aside. If you say you believe the gospel, but you don't believe in a literal Adam who lived 6,000 years ago, then you are left with a serious theological problem. Because Jesus Christ's righteousness only makes sense in the context of Adam's sin. So then, Paul paints for us the picture of the world seen through the lens of two people. Only two. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. That's it. Only two choices. There's not a third. One of the two will be your representative head. So then the million-dollar question is this. How exactly does one make the switch? How does one go from being in Adam to being in Christ? And that's what Paul has been explaining to us throughout Romans chapters 1 through 4. What he says is this. To get from Adam to Christ, one must, listen, believe. That's it. What Paul told us in Romans 1.16 is this. The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who what? Believes. Believes what? Believes that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, God in human flesh, fully God and fully man. Lived a perfect life that fully pleased God in every way, even obeying to the point of death on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins. And then he rose from the grave the third day, triumphant, having defeated death. He who believes that message is instantly transferred from the headship of Adam to the headship of Jesus Christ. Our sin is debited from Christ's account, and Christ's righteousness is instantly credited to your account. That's it. Once you believe, 
that transaction happened. You are saved. Paul has a name for this. He calls it justification by faith. You are justified, that is, you are declared righteous. That's what justified means. By the basis of your faith, not by your works in any way. Your justification is purely a gift by his grace. That's in Romans 3.24. And so now we've come full circle, haven't we? If you thought before that it was unfair for you to be taking the rap for Adam's sin, remember that that's just as unfair for Jesus to have to take the rap for your sin, right? It's the very same thing. You can't approve one and reject the other. If you thought it was kind of messed up that Adam made us dead before you were born, then listen, remember, remember that Ephesians 1 tells us that Christ also died for us before you were born. You had no active participation in either event. No active participation in either event. That's why the gospel is so incredible. We who believe the gospel live on the basis of righteous acts that we did not do. But now notice, that's not the end of the story. That's not actually not even the main point yet that Paul wants us to realize. In fact, all that was just background information so we can understand what Paul is really going to say here. And that's this. It's not as if Jesus is some sort of equivalent to Adam, right? That is, it's not as if the effects of Jesus' righteousness somehow is just enough to cancel Adam's sin. That's not the way it is. Rather, the effect of Jesus' righteousness vastly exceeds the effect of Adam's sin. That's what Paul wants to show us. The cost of Adam's sin, if, if the cost of Adam's sin could somehow be measured in dollars, then the depth of Jesus' righteousness would have to be measured in trillions of dollars. And this brings us to the third and final principle that determines whether we live or die. Principle number three is this. What the redeemed inherit in Christ far exceeds what was lost in Adam. What the redeemed inherit in Christ far exceeds what was lost in Adam. What you get in Jesus is vastly greater, far more than what you lost in Adam, beyond what you could possibly comprehend. And that's why I said before, this whole representative headship thing, as much as it might grate on your sense of pride, sorry, on your sense of pride and self-sufficiency, it's actually an incredible blessing to you. It's unfair to you only in the sense that it's not fair. You should get so much more than you deserve. That's why it's unfair. And Paul is going to explain that to us in verses 15 to 17. So let me tell you before we read it that the key to understanding these next verses is to remember what we inherited in Adam in the outline I gave you so far. We got from Adam, what, three things. Transgression, condemnation, and what? Death. All right, so remember those three things. It's a logical progression, right? Transgression leads to condemnation, leads to death. That's what we get from Adam. And Paul is going to take them one verse at a time and show you how Christ overturns and then far exceeds each one in return. So verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God 
and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Notice the contrast here is on what? What's the contrast? The gift and the transgression. Now, he doesn't tell us in this verse what the gift essentially is, but if we look at verse 17, we can tell that the gift is righteousness. Righteousness. So Paul's focus in verse 15 is to contrast the transgression we get from Adam with the righteousness we get from Christ. And look at the the terms that Paul uses to describe the gift. Much more than, right? Abounds. The righteousness is far more in quantity than the transgression was. Because when God deals with, with us in Adam, God deals with us on the basis of justice, right? When it comes to justice, there is an exact bill, a specific cost that you owe. That cost was death. You need to pay that bill. But when, Christ deals, when God deals with us in Christ, he deals with us on the basis of not justice, but grace, right? And grace is an unearned gift. Justice is earned, but grace is unearned. And that is why Paul keeps stressing to us grace, grace. It's a gift. It's a free gift by grace. A gift not tied to any bill. There is no limit on this grace. It is not precisely measured in the same way justice is. Instead, it just gushes out like a fire hose, like a bank account without a limit. The grace abounds and abounds and abounds, Paul says. And the word actually here means super abounded. It's like a pot that just boils over and overflows. There's so much grace spilling all over the place that you can't contain it, can't clean it up, too much of it. There's so much grace because, listen, there is so much righteousness. That's why there's so much grace. Jesus Christ was so incredibly righteous, his obedience to God so absolute and at such great a cost that his whole life and death was so pleasing to God in every way. It's an inexhaustible well of righteousness for us all. And you get all of it. It's a gift from Jesus himself. He gives it to you as a gift. Here's my righteousness. And then when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' full righteousness. Wow. God says to you, you couldn't possibly be more righteous, more full of good works, more pleasing to me, more innocent of sin. That's what God looks at. That's, that's what God sees when he looks at you. Do you find that amazing? Righteousness instead of transgression. But now, in the next verse, Paul is going to deal with the next thing we inherit, we inherit from Adam. Condemnation. So instead of inheriting condemnation from Adam, Paul says, we inherit justification in Christ. Look at verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now, it's important to realize that the terms condemnation and justification are legal terms. It's a legal term like you would use in a courtroom. You are either declared condemned because you are a sinner or you are declared 
righteous. That's what they mean. We are declared condemned in Adam, but justified. Not just not guilty, not just innocent, but justified in Christ. And here's the point. The amount of justification we get from Christ vastly outweighs the amount of condemnation we got from Adam. It must do that. And think about this. Adam sinned how many times for the world to be plunged into sin? One. And let's be honest, it wasn't even that bad of a sin. Not by our standards. I mean, this was Adam's sin. He ate some fruit. He didn't kill anyone. He didn't rape anyone. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't injure anyone. He didn't even pluck the fruit himself. It was handed to him by his wife. All he did was ate it. That's it. And I mean, you and I regularly commit multiple sins each day that make that look absolutely trivial, don't we? And understand this. You may have inherited that one sin from Adam, but since then, you have committed plenty of your own, haven't you? And in God's divine courtroom, you are going to be called into account for those as well. So if one tiny sin by Adam was all it took to plunge the entire human race into sin and death, what penalty do you think one of your sins deserve? How many universes can your sin plunge into darkness? And if you start adding up all this sin from all of human history, the amount of sin is profound, isn't it? Judgment arose from that one tiny transgression. But the free gift of righteousness arose after all of these many transgressions had occurred, leading to justification. That gift of righteousness had to cover not only the original transgression, but all those that came after it, you see? The justification that Christ brings is enough to pay for all of your sins and Adam's sin, all the sins that you've committed, all the sins that you could commit, and all the sins that you will commit in the future. You can't possibly exhaust that righteousness, no matter how much sin you throw at it. Think about it this way. When people first hear about this idea of salvation by faith, one common objection is to bring up Hitler. Hitler is the most evil person that most of us can think of, isn't he? Could someone like that be saved? That seems so unjust. If Hitler truly believed the gospel in his final moments, and of course, no indication that he did. But if he did, could Christ's righteousness save him? Is it enough? And the answer, according to this passage, is a resounding yes. The sins, even of Hitler, is a drop in a bucket compared to the grace that's available. Not because the sin isn't terrible, but because the grace is so vast. Here's another way to look at it. If you stand on the seashore and you look out into the ocean, you could perhaps say, that your sin is as vast as that ocean. But then you look up at the sun and you realize that if you were to dump that entire ocean into the sun, it wouldn't even make the sun flicker, not even a flicker. As vast as the oceans are, they would have no effect at all and they would be instantly incinerated because the sun is so huge and hot. That is the justification that extinguishes your condemnation. Well, the last link of the chain that we inherit from Adam is what? 
death. Transgression, condemnation, and death. And death is what Paul will deal with in the next verse. For if by the transgression of the one, verse 17, death reigns through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, here's what Paul is saying here, and I think it's just so incredible. He's just shown us how much more Christ's righteousness is than Adam's transgression, right? That's what he's just shown us. And now this is what he argues. If the effect of that transgression, remember, small by comparison, led to such vast and horrible consequences, death to the whole world, then what kind of effect do you think this huge righteousness will have? If that small transgression led to such vast death, how much effect do you think this huge righteousness has? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. The end result must be proportional to the cause, cause, right? The transgression was a small thing, but it had a really large effect. So it's only logical then that the, the righteousness, which is much bigger, will lead to something astronomically large in effect. Not only will the effect of spiritual death be completely reversed, not only the effect of physical death will be completely reversed, not only will the effect of Adam's sin be completely canceled, but listen, we are going to enjoy life and blessings and wonderful things that Adam never dreamed of. Better than the Garden of Eden. What does that look like? I have no idea. But I can't wait to get there. You get the point? We won't just be alive like Adam was. We will be abundantly alive, far more than Adam ever was or ever could imagine. But I want you to notice one other thing about this verse. And and Paul did a little bit of a sneaky thing in verse 17 that I want you to see. In verse 17, who is the one who is reigning by the transgression of the one? What What is reigning by the transgression of the one? Death, all right? But who is reigning... In the second half of the verse, well, you might have thought if death was reigning in the first half, then life would be reigning in the second half, right? But no, it is not life. It is, look at the verse, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. It's no longer life that reigns. It is us who will be reigning. Do you see that? God, Paul just kind of switched it up there a little bit. You see, human beings were originally created to reign over creation, weren't they? When Adam sinned, he forfeited that right. And then a new master came in, death. Death became the king of the world. He and the entire human race, us included, became slaves to the reign of death. And death reigned over us as our king, right? But then, having been justified by faith in Christ, we will then take our rightful place once again as rulers of the world, as we were intended to do all along. Slaves to death no more, we will reign. We will reign. And thus, the curse of Adam's sin is not only reversed, but the dial is fully turned in the other direction. So, I hope you understand here the vastness of what you inherit in Christ. It's time to summarize, but 
This time I want to let Paul do the summarizing because that's what he does in the remaining verses in 18 to 21. He just makes some summary statements that reiterate everything we talked about. And we'll just go through those quickly. In the first two verses, in 18 and 19, he's going to sum up the similarities that we looked at between Adam and Christ. And in the second two verses, he's going to sum up the contrast. So we've already looked at 18. Let's just read it. Therefore, as one, tres- as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You hear that? Righteousness, justification, and life. That's what we get from Christ. Now, just a quick note, of course, when Paul uses the word all, he doesn't mean all without exception. He simply means all he represents, right? And he's already qualified that, of course, in the previous verse, in verse 17. It's all who receive the gift, those who believe. And we could talk about the the parallelism he's using, but we don't have time for that today. So verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, there were, sorry, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And, of course, this verse is not saying that we are made sinners in the sense that we sin personally. Not, that's true, but that's not the point of the verse. It's talking about the fact that we are made sinners by Adam in the eyes of God in the judicial sense. And similarly, by one man's obedience, we are made righteous in the eyes of God in the judicial sense. Those are the similarities between Adam and Christ. They are two sides of the same coin. But then here are the differences that Paul summarizes in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, the the effect of the Mosaic law, instead of reducing sin, as you might think it would, actually increased it. It turns out that God dictating rules actually made people want to sin more. Can you imagine that? So the law came in and sin multiplied. But the point of the verse is this. Even over that increased trespass, for those who have received the gift of faith through Jesus Christ, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's the word abound again. Super increased overflowing, bubbling over to cover even this greatly increased trespass. It's outrageously vast, this grace. It's so outrageous, in fact, that the next question that might be on your minds, if you're starting to grasp the magnitude of this grace, is this. Why not just sin then? I mean, why should we bother restraining sin at all if grace will just expand to wipe it away, right? It's almost like taking a shower before you jump into the ocean. I mean, what's the point of that? And if you're asking the question, then, you know, I think you might be beginning to understand what grace is. And Paul, of course, knows that's the very next question, and he deals with that right in the beginning of Romans 6. We won't have time to do that today. That's another sermon for another day. But the answer, of course, is, should we sin so grace may increase? No. No, absolutely not. But anyways, finally, verse 21. And here's where Paul wraps it up for us. It's all wrapped up in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace may also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
See, everyone, Paul reminds us, belongs to two worlds. In Adam's world, sin and death rule with an iron fist, like a brutal dictatorship, showing no mercy, making no exceptions. Everyone starts out as a citizen in Adam's world, but those who believe in Jesus Christ have their citizenship instantly transferred to another completely different world, Jesus' world. A world that is ruled not by sin and death, but by grace, righteousness, and eternal life. And we get there through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You only need to believe that Jesus Christ was the God-man, lived a sinless and perfect life, and died on your behalf in Calvary's cross, and rose again on the third day. So, which world would you rather live in? If you're here today, then know this. Righteousness, justification, and life are within your grasp. They're within your grasp. Would you believe, it, would you believe today in Jesus Christ and be saved? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your message. And Lord, we begin to understand by looking at this passage the depth of our hopelessness in Adam. Lord, we cannot possibly work our way to your favor because we have inherited guilt that can only be dealt with by inheriting righteousness from another. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would cause the people here today to move their hearts, to transfer their citizenship from that of death in Adam to life in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the abounding grace that you've made available to us and the abounding righteousness that you've given to us freely as a gift. Pray, Lord, that you would live in the way that demonstrates that we have that righteousness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.